It's a trap! In today's Golazzo, we salute the one and only Giovanni Trapattoni, who turns 80 on Sunday week. And also, Juve see off Napoli, Roma is blue, and peak Atalanta. On board today, it's hello, Gabriele Marcotti, welcome back. Thanks, great to be back. Did you miss me? Yeah, a lot, actually. I know. You did too, didn't you, listener? James Horncastle's here. Hey, James. That's the good news. Happy birthday, Trapattoni, in advance. 17th of March, he will turn 80. Mm -hmm. And And also uh, the 10th of March. Oh, yeah. It was the anniversary of uh, his Strunz press conference, which we'll get to, I'm sure. Maybe we will. Maybe we won't. Okay. Because... This is a man whose career goes far beyond the kind of standard memes and tropes about him. His whistle, his appalling sentence construction that was lampooned every Sunday night on Italian TV throughout the 90s. His holy water. His holy water, his ability to mark Pelé and Eusebio out of matches. There is so much to Trapadoni's story that I think gets a little bit lost behind his recent work because it's kind of hard to unsee that Ireland team at Euro 2012, Gab. Yeah, especially if you're Irish, a bad team with a manager who made perhaps some poor choices, and then they got Martin O'Neill. So, you know, God (laughs) sorted that one out for them. So, uh, no, but really it's a remarkable story that I think really transcends football and really speaks to what happened in Italy and more broadly in Europe throughout post-war, even during the war even, um, to this day. Well, the story is so vast that it may actually require a second Golazzo. To finish off, yes, I know. But anyway, for those who may know Trapattoni as a gentlemanly, slightly Jurassic manager, we begin our salute to the most successful club manager of all time, I believe I'm right in saying, the only man to won all official continental club competitions and the world title too, all the way back in, Gabriele, 1939. Black and white round here. Gav, what are we doing here? Well, you're in the little town of Cusano sul Seveso, as it was known back then. Or as, actually, the name was just changing, which is essentially a bedroom community outside right. Milan. A man named Luigi Buffoli had, on the instruction of uh, fascist authorities at the time, decided that he was going to create a satellite city, kind of like a Milton Keynes satellite little village a posh suburb of Milan attached to Cusano. So Cusano became Cusano Milanino. So you have the older industrial part, uh-huh. and then you have the nice part of town where they're all single-family homes with, with nice gardens and these wide tree-lined avenues. And Trapattoni was not born in the nice part. Uh, he was born in the rubbish part to a family that, and this is something that, well, because my mother's side of the family are from there, my grandfather was actually the, the mayor of Cusano Milanino for 18 in, years. In what period? Uh, post-war. Okay. Um, it is the kind of place where everybody kind of knew him from a young age or claimed to have known him from a young age growing up. And he went to work, I think, when he was 11 years old. 14, I believe, as a, as a typographer apprentice. Is that right? He, no, he worked in the bakery. Before oh, that. did he do the bakery? Um, and in fact... He told me when I interviewed him, part of the reason they sent him to work in in the bakery was literally they had trouble getting food on the table during the war because 
for a number of reasons. You know, a unskilled laborers, large family, a whole bunch of cousins they had to look after, an extended family where a lot of people were in the war and right. so many of them didn't come back. So there were no men around. And it was kind of a picture of, you know, what is now sort of a modern suburb that people commute to into town. And mm. But back then there was sort of re the real kind of poverty that today we, we really associate with war zones. The weird thing, I don't know if this has changed now, but every time, even when you'd go back and, and you'd bump into him or, or whatever, when you had to do an interview, he's got a friend who owns like, uh, uh, actually this guy's probably dead by now because he was old. I always remember this guy being old. He runs a garage. Yes, he runs a garage <laughs> and like, you know, it's, it's like a tire shop. I think it's in Sesto San Giovanni, like a couple towns. Sesto San Giovanni once known as the Stalingrad of, uh, of Italy because it was a very, very left-wing industrial suburb of Milan. And yeah, you'd go there and he'd insist that you interviewed him there. And I asked him, why do we have to come to this place? And he's like, well, just in case you, you bring a photographer, if you notice, I always sit down in front of, of the sign and it's got the phone number and the address. And I'm like, yeah, that makes sense because, you know, I'm interviewing you for the Times or whatever. So if any Times readers happen to be in Milan and need new tires, they'll see the, they'll see the sign behind you. And, uh, and what did he say to that? And <laughs> I, I, I thought I was a little bit more more respectful okay. uh, at the time. But he did grow up in this sort of extreme poverty, which which was unusual for Milan at the time. He was six and a half when the war ended, and right. you know he remembers you know sort of German soldiers being around that part of of the world. German soldier giving him a you know little chocolate and that sort of thing, and then being sort of beckoned to come back away from this man. Well, I've got my cup of tea here, listeners, and I suggest you do the same because this is going to be three or four Galatsos at least at the rate we're going. So he's six, the war ends. When does the football start? I mean, he, he was always kicking the ball around because that's what kids do in those days before they had PlayStations and Nintendos. Mm. Um, and I think he gets spotted by a guy called Mario Malatesta, who... Um, Whose name means bad head, which is funny. <laughs> Um, and uh, is drafted into to Milan's sort of youth setup, and there, you know, sort of, you've got this kind of Gipoviani, who, you know, if you've read Inverting the Pyramid by uh, Jonathan Wilson, you'll know his influence in in Italian football and his tactical development breaks into the first team with a kind of a few of his buddies as well. I mean, this was a a, a Milan side that uh, drew not, I wouldn't say heavily on uh, the city and and its environs, but certainly brought other players through with him. So he makes his debut, James, in 1958. Yeah, in the cup against uh, Como. And it won't be a huge surprise to people who've, who've seen his work in later years to know that he was he played as a centre-half or as a defensive midfielder. Yeah, um, and I think one of the kind of sad stories about this is that his father disapproved mm. of him trying to make it as a, as a professional footballer, didn't think he had much chance of, of doing it, thought it was a frivolous profession. And, and so when he made his debut, he did not tell his dad he was going to be playing. And he came home, and it was the talk of the town, I think. And Not his, much happens in Cusano, I think it's fair to say. <laughs> his, his dad had found out and said, well, I'm, I'm never going to get to see you play. And three days later, he died of a, a heart attack. And, um, and Trapattoni kind of was always sort of wondering, well, what did he know? You know, because we had no inkling that either he was ill or that he, you know, sort of, you know, anticipated that something bad was going to happen. Well, he went on to have an extraordinary career, with Milan, almost entirely with Milan, there was a short spell with Varese right at the end, uh, another local uh, side, but wins the Italian title twice, wins the European title, the European Cup, 
twice and in the space of one month in 1963 becomes legendary in Italy because of two matches. First of all, on the 12th of May, there's a friendly at San Siro between Italy and Brazil. Yeah, and uh, there was pressure for, for Trapattoni not to play in that game because Milan were preparing for this European Cup final. It was important that they became the first Italian side to win it, which they obviously did. He kind of reluctantly goes to, I wouldn't say reluctantly, he goes and plays for his country, but knows that it's the disapproval of his club and, and plays against Pele, Brazil, who were the world champions at the time. And he kind of freely admits that he only played against Pele for 23 minutes or so because Pele was injured. And yet yeah, he was under pressure to play as well because yeah, the whole point of this friendly was was sold on the fact that you know Italian audiences would get to see Pele. So he thinks the job he did on Eusebio um, a few okay. weeks later was was bigger and better. But of course, the myth about Trapattoni was built. The man the who stopped Pele. Yeah. And he was twenty four, and as you say, a couple of weeks later, he's up against Eusebio and does more or less the same thing. Can. Yeah, no, I was going to say, this is one of the wonderful things when we go back into the past, right? Today, obviously, we have YouTube, we, we know everything. We, but back then, you could create myths, which, you know, I'm seeing like other football myths, like the fact that Dennis Law's goal relegated Manchester United, you know, which isn't true. Is that not true? No, amazingly. But it becomes fact that, you know, the 23 minutes against Pelé and the, the thing about, you know, follow him even when he goes to the bathroom and swap shirts with him during the game. You know, you know, that kind of thing. You know, back then you could create these myths. You know, if, if, if you were skilled, you could create this whole idea. There was, there, was, there was a mystery to it. You know, now that we're omniscient, you know, there'd well, be immediately also, somebody. Also, Gab, think of how that plays into, like, if you're a player, these days you've got all this information. You know, you've got staff who will give you clips of, you know, this is what this player does. This is his playing style. This is what you need to do in order to stop him. And uh, throughout his playing career, he talks about coming up against Pele, having never seen him. Mm. You know, have heard about him, but never seen him. Doesn't know what to expect. The same with Eusebio. The same with Cruyff later, who he's just like... When have I ever heard of a famous Dutch player? There's never been any famous Dutch players. You know, this this two-bit team from Amsterdam, you know, who do they think they are? And completely uh, has to learn as he's playing against them. Um, has to, you know, pick up on the job, essentially. That's what I find, again, just recapping on this era, what is amazing what these, how little information these players had outside of their, their country compared with, obviously, today. Mm. And there's a wonderful story which we may get to specifically on that, on misdirection, 1983 European Cup final, mm. Juventus against Hamburg, where this time Trapattoni is the victim of a misdirection, but it totally ties into what James said, is it was a different era. Information was so limited, you kind of discovered things as you went along. Yeah, that, that performance for Milan against Benfica, and again, for context, you know, people today, haha, Benfica, you know, what, what is that? But until that point, I think I'm right in saying the only teams to have won the European Cup were, were Real Madrid, who of course had won it six times, and Benfica, who had won two in a row. Nobody else from any other European country had even come close to winning it. I think that the fact that Milan became the first Italian club to do it in those circumstances with that sort of heroic Trapattoni performance was an early part of lore surrounding it. Ma ripetiamo, il Milan ha vinto l'ottava edizione della Coppa dei Campioni. Entusiasmo ancora, vedete un agitare di bandiere rosso-nere. It was a great Milan side that you had uh, 
Altafini there, Cesare Maldini, and of course Jenny Rivera, as was Nerio Rocco, the, the manager of, of that Milan and the, the kind of architect of an entire Italian way of, of, of approaching football, who presumably has a massive impact on the way that Trapattoni's football evolves. Yeah, I mean, there's a great documentary on Italian TV at the moment, which yeah, I think maybe Gab's seen. It's about the influence of Trieste on Italian football. Incredible. And, and, and Fiume. Yeah, and Fiume. Yeah. And, and, and what came out of there from, you know, sort of the 1940s onwards, just what an odd kind of situation that found itself in. But Rocco obviously came from there. And Cesare Maldini, who, you know, would later become his his assistant. Whose um, grandson, Daniel Mandini, is looking oh, like a very good footballer. Has he just scored in his fourth game in a row? Yes. For yeah. the Primavera. Yeah, yeah. scored a yeah. wicked free kick at the weekend. But um, Love the fact that we can discuss Maldini without mentioning the generation in between. Let's keep it that way. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I mean, Rocco is, I suppose, held up along with Herrera as being, you know, symbolic of this... Um, mm. El Paron. The style of football that came to define... Uh, Italian football from the 60s onwards, you know, as being defensive, even though his, what was it, his, his Padua team scored loads of goals and was, you know, one of the revelations in terms of finishing third, which was incredible for a provincial side at that time. But, you know, Rocco, again, just seen as this guy who, you know, would wear a suit and a kind of I mean, uh, one of the hat, most imposing but, looking guys, I think, ever in, 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 yeah, in, in big, the Italian big game. big character, but would, would wear football boots underneath them. Right. Um, and, uh, and, yeah, would would often come to training after a, a boozy lunch with uh, some of the journos at the time. I think you can still go to the restaurant La Sassino in, uh, in, in Milan and would, you know, kind of fall asleep under a tree and let Maldini take training. Magnificent. <laughs> I like to think that if Big Sam had been born a few years earlier, he <laughs> would have been Nereo Rocco. One thing, though, that, that extraordinary performance against Pele, but he only actually had 17 caps for the Azuri. Any, any particular reason for that? Well, I, I think he uh, he went to a World Cup in Chile in 1962. Um, An uneventful one, frankly. Well, yeah, but I mean, he, he wasn't really party to it because he'd, um, I think he'd hurt his ankle in the last game of the season, but he gets taken anyway. And uh, yeah, Gab, you had a Google recommendation on the back of this. Well, if you're like me, often when you listen to podcasts, you, know, you obviously do it on your phone, so you've got quick access to YouTube and Google. To this day, the video especially the one with that sort of weirdly, stereotypically, annoyingly English commentator. David Coleman. (laughs) David Coleman, yeah, the guy guy from Coleman Balls. Exactly. In Private Eye, okay. The game you're about to see is the most stupid, appalling, disgusting, and disgraceful exhibition of football possibly in the history of the game. Chile versus Italy. This is the first time the two countries have met. We hope it will be the last. This is pretty extraordinary. And the funniest thing is, because obviously as Italy played Chile and this massive brawl breaks out, several brawls at different times during the match break out. I think a game of football and, breaks out yeah. during the brawl, but yeah. But what's absolutely hilarious is when you see brawls today or when we see like fights in the street or whatever, uh-huh. they look like fights. Back then, they look like weirdos because if you see this, and please go do this. You haven't done this in a while. They go and they put their they put their their their, 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 their fists up. Yeah, exactly. As if like they're in like King's some like rules. haven't you, sir? Yeah, it's like I some kind know, of like I, Buster I, Keaton like comedy I routine from point. like I silent film. It's hilarious. I would I would say that were you to compare the film of that brawl with with what passes for brawl in today's game, which has frankly gone in this regard, where the mere inclination of a forehead towards your opponent is seen as some kind of <laughs> this is yeah. true. So, Trapattoni, something of a legend as a player, 
But that was nothing to what was going to happen once he became a manager. Adriano Celentano rocking the Italian classifica in 1976 with his uh, svalutation. The Italian classifica in football terms which was soon to be dominated by one team and one man, Giovanni Trapattoni's Juventus. A 10-year period, it had a brief spell as a caretaker manager really at Milan, been hired by Giampiero Boniperti to take over at Juve, who'd narrowly missed out on the title, to their local rivals, Torino. And he began this extraordinary period in which, in 10 years, they won six titles, which these days for Juve would admittedly be sackably poor, but in those days <laughs> sounded really impressive. Yeah, and, and we should stress that, you know, while he did manage Milan very young, you said as, as a caretaker, and he's pretty open about it. I, mean, I don't know about his book, but in conversations with him was like, you know, he said they didn't think I was particularly clever back then. It's not like they looked at me and they said, ooh, you know, there's manager material. Let's fast track them. No, they just saw me as a guy who was loyal and would follow instructions. So I always had some other figure either nearby, even when I was the boss. I was just seen as the club man, the continuity man. And that's why when Giampiero Boniperti, who was the president of Juventus at the time, legendary former striker, when he got in touch... Tapatoni was floored. I don't, again, I don't know if he addresses this in the book, but well, he does because, like, um, he uh, thinks that his sort of short spell as, as coach of Milan is a bit of a disaster. And you know, he talks about all the kind of problems that he had there. For example, Gianni Ribera becomes this kind of larger-than-life kind of figure who I think at some stage buys some shares in the club and you know it, 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 oh that's right no yeah his friend basically takes over the club <laughs> so now Trapattoni has this extraordinary position where essentially his one pl- of his players is his boss he can get rid of he can get rid of the managers if he wants he mm. can get rid of the presidents that if he wants but Atalanta basically come in for Trap and say you know we think you're perfect for, a, for our team you're a developing manager we like people who can come in and develop our players and um, then a journalist from La Stampa, um, the Turin National, basically calls up and says, don't take any definitive decision. I've got someone who wants to talk to you. Can you get in your car now and and pull off at the Navarra turning uh, on the A- A4 motorway or something like that? And there's a hotel there and go in there. And he goes and there's Bonnie Petty. They have a conversation uh, and they're sort of dancing around the subject and Trapattoni says, it sounds kind of like you're offering me the job. And he's like, well, yeah, I am. And uh, he's like, well, I've already shaken hands with Atalanta on this. And Bonaparte's like, don't worry, I'll take care of that. Wow. And he becomes at 36, 37. The, it's the, crazy, the, no? the, the, I mean, this is the thing, because I think Football Italia generation, a lot of our younger listeners think of Trap as this kind of white walker of, of, <laughs> of, of coaching, you know? He's been, he's been ancient for a long, long time. But he was so young when he became a... 35 years old manager of Juventus. Now, bear in mind, Italy is this magical country where you manage... People still call you a kid until you... I think 50 is kind of the demarcation. When When you you move out of your parents' home, essentially. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So for somebody to go and give the job to somebody like Trapattoni, who has zero affiliation with Juventus, um, in fact, was a rival and obviously on the pitch who was seen as somebody who was, you know, sort of loyal, kind of like terrier-like, but, you know, wasn't seen as some deep thinker, not an educated man. 
in his first season in charge, he's up against a Torino team that had just won the title the mm-hmm, year yeah. before and have these two amazing, this amazing, the, the, the goal twins, uh, Paulino Pulici and uh, Ciccio Graziani. And all season long, it's just this incredible head-to-head. And they just, both teams just keep winning. And they ended up getting 51 out of the possible 60 points And this is season. this is an 18-team uh, City A with only two it's sixteen teams. Oh, sixteen teams there, yeah. but two points for a for a win. Yeah, and this wasn't this isn't like today where like you know because of globalization and polarization and stuff like that, you know you've got teams that you know have a hundred times the budget of somebody else. This is more than the equivalent of the hundred point season, and this is this is two teams that just absolutely flatten everybody. And Juventus, of course, go ahead and win the title, and because it's Juventus winning a title. There will be people coming out and then saying all sorts of things. But that season, Turin really was, you know, the hub of, of European football. Also, I mean, th- just think of the kind of pressure that a 35-year-old rookie manager comes into. You've got all the expectations that come with being a Juventus manager and your rivals, your city rivals, are the champions. And they've got a crack team. They're playing innovative football. You've got Gigi Radice there mm. is the, the manager who was also part of Rocco's Milan team. You just have to think of the number of managers, successful managers he fathered. And he walks into Juve and you look at the players that they've got. Altafini's retiring. Um, they want to get rid of Anastasi. Capello's knee is just in a bad way. And so they bring in a couple of veterans that Boniperti's like, why do you want Boninsegna? Why do you want Romeo Benetti? And both of these guys become key. And as Gab says... From the get-go, they hardly miss a beat. They hardly drop any points, which would become a kind of late motif of Trapp's career. We'll see when he gets to Inter, the records he set there. But they also, I think, was that the year they, they did the, the double? UA- yeah, they won the UEFA Cup that year as well, which was Juve's first ever international trophy. And it came from him. And all of a sudden, the world is very much at his feet. And right. this is, again, something that even today, certain pundits look back on very nostalgically because look it was an all Italian team uh, the last all Italian team to win a major European trophy and this was right? of course at a time post 66 and what happened in against Korea where there was the ban on foreign players and that was only lifted in 82 1980. no 1980 and the, the first foreign player that Juve brought in was Liam Brady Yes. Who contributes hugely to this run of wins. So they win in 76-77, Trapp's first season with Juve. The following year as well. Then 80-81, 81-82, 83-84, 85-86 as well. There's a couple of Coppa Italis in there. They win, of course, in terrible circumstances, the European Cup in 85. The Intercontinental Cup following that in 85 as well. There was a Cup Winners' Cup in 83, 84, European Super Cup in 84, UEFA Cup, you mentioned 76, 77. I mean, I could go on. But my my interest is peaked, Gab, in your story about the infamous Felix Maggard uh, 1983 Hamburg final of the European Cup. 1982, of course, the World Cup final. Italy played Germany, and Italy, of course, win 3-1, as we all know. For Juventus winning the European Cup, was very much an obsession. I think by that point it had like nine attempts or ten attempts at it and always come up short. And so they get to the final and there's at least two or three German players who had, had been in the Germany final, guys like Hrubisch, Felix Magath, of course, and they're playing Juve where not only do they have, they have six guys who played in that final, plus uh, Michel Platini, plus Zibi Bonjak. So this is a 
pretty stacked team, you could say. Bello di notte. So Juventus were favorites, but equally Trapattoni was just determined to go and get this right. Juventus man-marked, as a lot of Italian clubs do, and they had two pretty good man-markers. They had this guy named Sergio Brio, who was a big, tall lump, but he was perfect because he could mark Horst Rubisch, who was uh, um, Hamburg's big, tall lump of a target man center forward. And then you had Claudio Gentile, who people remember from, you know, he was a very, very intense, slightly dirty player. But Nominative determinism is Claudio Gentile. Exactly. Mm. Gentile played right back. And what would tend to happen is he would normally pick up the second striker and he would, and he would man mark. So Trapattoni became so, he sent a scout to go and got all this information on, on, on the movement and stuff like that. And he was going to go and, and, and pick up this guy named, it was either Lars Bastrop or, or Jurgen Belevsky. I'm just looking at this team again. But basically he was essentially the left forward for, for Hamburg. He just told Gentile what he had been told when it was time to face Pelé, which was like, you follow him everywhere, you know, even into the, even into the toilet. And, you know, the game kicks off and Gentile, not the sharpest tool in the box. He does exactly as he's told. He follows instructions, except this, this guy who I think was Bastrop, but it might've been Milevsky is on the other wing. He's not the left-sided forward. He's on Hamburg's right side, which is Juve's left side. So Gentile goes and wanders over there and literally man-marks him, leaving a massive gaping hole where Gentile was supposed to be. Right. And it's a kind of adjustment that they could make later on, but it took Juve so long to realize. So Marco Tardelli... Well, how, who, how come? You just thought that'd be fairly evident, no? When, as soon as they got the team sheet, they'd realize he's on the wrong side. Because it's... Again, I asked them this, and... He's just like, wow, you know, there was so much chaos and confusion in, right. in, in the stadium. He claims, not when I spoke to him, but in other interviews, that he told Tardelli, who was in central midfield, to sit in there while they could figure out what was going on with, you know, why the Bastrop or Malevsky wasn't where he was supposed to be. <laughs> right. Long and short of it is Tardelli has to basically play central midfield and right back at the same time. And... Hamburg have a left-sided midfielder named Felix Magath, cuddly, lovable, Fulham fans of fond memories, who... The cheese healer. The cheese healer, that's right. <laughs> who basically waltzes right down that left-hand side where there's, where there's nobody, I mean literally nobody, other than a, than a desperate Tardelli who has to mark him and mark the attacking left-back and three different things at once, and unleashes a shot from, I think, just inside the box and beaten, and this is after eight minutes, and... Trapattoni is furious. And he, he basically admitted it. You know, he had followed every detail in preparing and he took this very, very seriously as a priority for the club, except the most obvious thing that people might not line up where they were supposed to line yeah. up and he didn't have an adjustment for it. Of course, he did go on to finally end Juve's quest for the European title in 85 on what was one of the darkest days in football history at Heisel. And... A game that many people, are, I don't know how seriously they take that result because it's a game that should never have, have taken place. Yeah, and, you know, this is something that I touched on. But the thing about Trapattoni is Trapattoni is a deeply, deeply religious guy. He doesn't, he's a deeply superstitious guy as well. But his attitude was, we were there to do a job. It wasn't our call whether to play or not. Um, there's been... I mean, when you talk about Heisel, there, there's been a ton of dispute about what people 
knew about the deaths and what they didn't know. Um, and if you again you talk to different people who were involved in that day, they'll well, generally you, you'd tell like you different to think things. That the players and, didn't know because they celebrated the victory at the final whistle, which is kind of strange. But yeah, I mean, certainly I've, I did a bunch of interviews with. Yeah. With. Um, There's also people who change their story about what they knew and what they didn't know. But I mean, subsequently, I think uh, Trap says in his book, and it's something that I think Marco Tardelli has also said about, is that they they don't really acknowledge that that as a as a victory they don't really acknowledge that trophy is something that they won um obviously it's there in the record books but it's not something they take any kind of professional pride from as gab said i think they felt that they were given a lot of conflicting information at the time they were told to play for public order reasons mm. i think six months before they played the european super cup against liverpool and they won two nil and i think in their minds because obviously Liverpool had won the European Cup the year before against on, on penalties against Roma in Rome, and Juventus had won the Cup Winners' Cup the year before. And it's, you know, in their minds, we we beat Liverpool. We beat Liverpool that I think it was November, December. Mm. I think it was snow and it was a red ball. I seem to remember, and that was what mattered. You know, mm. I saw the game should have never gone ahead, and the whole game was was surreal, frankly. Trapattoni then does one more season at Juventus. And leaves at the end of the 85-86 campaign. Why did he leave? Well, this is the 85-86 campaign is interesting because this was also the year that Juventus had kind of decided that that generation had all, you know, former World Cup winners, they all gone too old. So they brought in a whole bunch of a whole bunch of other guys and they won the, the title again. And around that time, Inter, in very Inter fashion, they'd spent a ton of money and they'd come to the conclusion that clearly the problem was the manager, which which you know because you're into because you keep firing them and we need to get the best manager around and it was a massive move to inter it didn't start out in the greatest way because obviously it's still inter so you had all sorts of of dysfunctions and his first season his first two seasons were humdrum 87 88 was made worse by the fact you know for inter was the fact that that was saki's first season and so <laughs> milan had uh had, had won and this being Italy, people were saying, oh, look, it obviously wasn't Trapattoni that won all those titles. It was Juve and Agnelli and blah, blah, blah. And then you have this this incredible 88-89 season where that summer Inter signed Dottor Matthäus and left-back named Andy Bremer. They had a deal in place to bring in Jürgen Klinsmann as well, but they couldn't because of administrative reasons or they had to wait a year. So they brought in Ramon Diaz, <laughs> one of my all-time favorite players um and he has just the season of a lifetime I mean they all did I mean Aldo Serena scoring 22 goals that year Inter getting 58 of uh possible 68 points that season that was a record for an 18 team league yeah Andy Breme is unplayable you know the purely two-footed player of course would go on to do one of the most incredible things I've ever seen which is score two free kick goals in the same game with either foot yeah, yeah. you know Matteoli, who had arrived from Cagliari, who was sort of a number 10 attacking midfielder type curlier, he reinvents him as a deep-lying midfielder. The pre-Pirlo kind of transformation. He was Pirlo before Pirlo. They had this guy, Alessandro Bianchi, who later got injured, but who was an absolute beast of an up-and-down winger. Um, Nicola Berti. Nicola Berti, who doesn't <laughs> like Big Nick. Lo zio. <laughs> Lo zio, Beppe Bergomi, World Cup winner at, at 18. and yeah. uh, Ferdi. And yeah, of course, Ricardo Ferri. You know, really, Ricardo Ferri, the, the and robot. Also, cop. by then, 
a certain Spider-Man in goal. Yeah, he's just got sacked. Baltazinga. Yeah. The greatest Italian goalkeeper of all time at the time, in my opinion. Okay. So that was Trap at Inter, and it was to be a record-breaking season, one that probably marks the high point of his managerial career. The high point, perhaps, but by no means the end of the Trapattoni story, because there's still to come. Terrible grammar, strunz, Italy, Swedish biscuits, holy water, all that stuff. Part two of the Trapattoni story is on next week's Galazzo, but don't go away, listener, because after this, we're going to be dealing with a pretty special weekend of this current City A season. Hello, I'm Emma Bullymore. And I'm Mark Jeffries. We host the Series Link podcast for TV fans by TV fans. And this week, we have a very special guest. We managed to sit down with the one and only Ricky Gervais. Jane went to Brighton once um, to visit her mum, and the boiler went, and I didn't know how to do it. (laughs) And I couldn't get the telly on. So I sat for two nights. So she went for two days. Two days. And and she came out and it was like, it was honestly, it was like Castaway. He talked to us about everything, including his new Netflix show Afterlife, his love of dogs and what he thinks of Twitter critics. To be able to cast your leading lady as a German shepherd (laughs) was unbelievable for me. And I admit, I cast it on looks first, and then, then she backed up with a great personality. Search Series Linked on your podcast app to hear the full interview with Ricky. Frown all you want, Gab, but this is from uh, Ilario Finis who says, We did win the derby after all. Can we have Giardini Di Marzo played on Golazzo? There you go for all the Laziali out there because it's not often they get to celebrate a 3 0 win over Roma, but that's what they had this weekend in the derby. James, it was a fantastic performance from one of the two teams. <laughs> and a non performance by by the other. I think Lazio were, were brilliant from, from start to finish. I think. Um, Eusebio Di Francesco got outcoached by by Simone Inzaghi in some respects and I didn't really see this coming because um, Lazio had uh, drawn 0-0 against Milan in the cup semi-final a few days before. They'd lost the previous four games and yet right from the get-go you could see that Luis Alberto in particular and Joaquin Correa that, just, uh, that ball through. Well also I mean for all of this great performance by Lazio Roma and particularly Federico Fazio had a night to forget in that how twice in one evening can you allow your you know the quickest forward on that team to get goal side of you? But if you're yeah, not quick uh, and he's quick, no, there's no, nothing no. you can uh, do about uh, it. Uh, no, oh, come on. Oh, come on. That <laughs> ball over the top. What's he supposed to do about that? You can't concede from a throw-in okay. and and show the guy goal side. I mean, Fazio had his issues, but remember, most weeks Fazio shows up at work, and the guy next to him is the Greek god of lightning. Costas Manolis, right, the fastest is... thing on two legs. He's not there, and it takes Fazio time to realize, oh, wait, I'm playing with Juan Jesus, who is frankly terrible right. and has long been terrible and is not a central defender. 
you know, that's where you need to make an adjustment. Whether it's Fazio, whether it should have been Di Francesco. Right. Okay. But this so, was a bad and it was coming from Roma too, because remember the, the Frosinone game. And then, then they, they, you know, they had two Casado twelve minutes in off Correa's beautifully slipped in Correa ball. Correa was brilliant. I mean, like uh, he provokes the penalty as well, mm. uh, which Fazio gives away. That's on Carrera, and Mobili makes it 2-0. And then a thunderous strike from Cataldi uh, blasts Olsen's hands out the way and nestles in the net for a 3-0 win, equaling Lazio's biggest ever derby victory. Yeah, which we spoke about last mm. week. Yeah, Kolarov gets a red at the end. I mean, this is the other thing. Jekyll uh, gets stupidly booked at the end right. as well, which means he's suspended. It does that mean he's game. suspended? Yeah, Fats, uh, Fats is also suspended which is for the next game, which is kind of a... I think a positive at this point, but at the same time, these are your senior players, yeah. and as what happened when they lost seven one at, uh, at Fiorentina, these guys lose their heads at the end of the game. So and these are the guys you should be looking to. To it is odd how this is a team where the young players are actually probably mentally stronger and more reliable, not to go and do something stupid mm. compared to the old players. We, we appear to be talking about Roma, Sorry. Lazio, though. <laughs> A fantastic result for them, which puts them back in the picture for the top four. Yeah, they've got a game in hand. They're, they're three points behind Roma with a game in hand and a further three behind the team now in fourth place, who are, of course, Inter after they lost to Cagliari and Milan won and, and moved past them into into third. Uh, quick word on A with Sebastian Di Francesco's job. I mean, uh, they've got a game tonight, the second leg away in, in, in Portugal against Porto. Uh, 2-1 up from the first leg and I imagine they'll be quite nervous about that one. What what about the, the top four race? Atalanta as well, getting back into the picture there. They're level with Lazio, as are Torino, who I did not see this coming, are looking extraordinary under Mazzari. Is it well, six clean sheets in a row? Yeah, and they've got 11 for the season. I think Sidigu's probably been the best goalkeeper in the league this year, whether it be stopping penalties or early in that game. Um, point blank from Djordjevic. Um, you know, Matadi after the game said they, yeah, the scoreline flattered them because they scored twice in what stoppage time with goals from Belotti and Rincon from outside the box. But you can't argue with the run that they're on, um, the fact that they keep um, they keep notching up these clean sheets, and now their attacking players are finally scoring because for a long time it was like Armando Itzo, Ola Aina, you know, guys who would who basically go up for set pieces and come away with goals. But now that Belotti, Iago Falke, even Simone Zaza is beginning to score, it looks it looks good for Torino. Also, Torino have got a really good run-in. I mean, oh, yeah? I think the only the only game that's tricky for them is the Turin derby at the um, stadium. But yeah, but it. you know it's Mazzari. You know he's gonna go. He's gonna go and screw it up and blame somebody else. You know, you, you know, you just know. You know it's gonna be like, oh, Frosinone. Okay, you know, let's 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 be balanced. Let's have four central defenders and would, three you, defensive men. No, when he was fine. asked to explain uh, why it took them so long to kind of put gear with the bed, he was like, "Well, it was hot today. Yeah, it was hot. It's like when he blamed the rain uh, into for that defeat. Mm. Sometimes he blames the grass. Sometimes so level." With Smog. Torino and, and Lazio are Atalanta, who a couple of days on from that 3-3 draw in the cup with Fiorentina, beat them 3-1. Luis Muriel opening the scoring, and then there was a deflection which uh, brought the home side level. Golini, our favourite uh, reggaeton. Uh, um, now the only rapper in the league, of course, since Kevin Prince Boateng has gone to Barcelona. Oh, that's true. <laughs> Afraid, maybe, of, of Golini and his... Right. Spitting his lyrics. And then the next two goals are pretty special from Atalanta. Yeah, I mean, Ilicic, who was magnificent in midweek, 
Um, completely tormented Fiorentina. Again, outside of the box, finds the corner. But Atlanta, have, to have these two number 10s playing off Zapata, I mean, Papu, uh, his goal was just brilliant. I mean, mm. he comes and receives the ball in his own half, spins Milenkovic. Taking two players out with that, with that one spin. Yeah. And, and the best thing about Atlanta after years about hearing the propaganda about homegrown players and yes and look they're doing things the right way this is the, the wonderful irony in this is that I think 10 of the, out of 11 of their starting 11 you know of the real proper starting 11 you find, I think they actually be 11 out of 11 are foreigners and are not products of what is the best still the you know generally considered to be the best youth academy in, in Italy and one of the very best in Europe mm. it is pretty remarkable how the club have pivoted in that direction they currently lie eighth, but only three points off Roma in fifth place. So a real prospect of seeing them back in Europe next next season. A uh, big game coming up this weekend, which you can see on Premier Sports. Uh, sees Fiorentina taking on Lazio on Sunday night. Premier Sports, quick mention for this, the exclusive rights holders for City and the UK until 2021. We'll have eight live games across their channels, Premier Sports 1, 2 and sister channel Free Sports, including... Gab, Juve Udinese, the black and white striped derby. That's on Friday night. Parma Genoa, that'll be the day after. And Sunday night, that Fiorentina Lazio game. Incidentally, Golazzo listeners can get Premier Sports via Sky and the Premier Player for just five ninety nine a month. And you get your first month completely free by signing up now at premiersports.com, entering the promo code GOLADSO. Premier Sports is also available on Virgin TV. Terms and conditions apply, so find out more by heading to premiersports.com and entering that promo code GOLADSO. That's GOLADSO with one L and two Zs. Last Sunday night's game was a big one, James Hall and Castle. A Napoli team 13 points behind Juventus, needing to win to keep those faint title hopes alive, but facing a Juve team that have really been stumbling. Yeah, and um, stumbled some more. we're lucky not to stumble again here because I thought they were poor. Um, yeah, even when it was 10 v 11, Napoli had three counterattacks. They hit the post for Zielinski straight after Juventus had taken the lead. And certainly when it was 10 v 10, Napoli completely outplayed them. And we're lucky not to come away with a point. Um, obviously, Insigne misses a penalty, hits right. the post. A controversial penalty. A penalty, that, to be fair. I mean, there's always the usual VAR business. That, that was no... On Alexandra, the handball that, that they gave the penalty for at the end, that was never a penalty. Never a penalty because you thought his arm was in a natural position? Basically, the ball's kicked straight at him. And his, his arm happens to be out. I don't know. I didn't feel that it was a clear and obvious error by the referee, certainly. But... Um, Insigne misses it anyway which I guess renders the point somewhat moot for me the big news in this game was the fact that early on uh, Cristiano Ronaldo goes down for a free kick and he doesn't take it Pjanic takes it and actually scores yeah I think what was also very interesting from this game is watching Ronaldo and his body language and how he kept turning to the bench and seemed to be shouting things on... Well, not you don't shout things under your breath, but he was clearly very unhappy with the way things were going, was you know obviously calling out his teammates by the looks of it. Not a, not a good look at all. Now, there's two things to say this, because this is something I think to definitely keep an eye on, and as we throw forward to Atletico Madrid as well. I think that there's two broad strands. One is Ronaldo, who has not been playing well, at the same time, he was clearly frustrated because Juve, not only were Juve bad, Juve were really passive. Yeah. 11 v 10, 
when you're a legate and you've spun this whole tale about we need to attack, blah, 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 that's how you win in Europe, freaking go for it. You know, if you don't go for it here with your massive lead, when are you going to do it? And so Ronaldo was, in, and you could clearly see this, he was basically sending two messages. One is he was trying to entice his, his teammates to come up and, and, and press rather than go back and defend and defend deeper, which I think Ronaldo was right. Although that said, you know, if I'm Dybala or whatever, or, or Bernardeschi, I'm like, okay, yeah, that's fine for you. But the managers told me to sit deeper and, you know, you won't get dropped. So Ronaldo's finally, you know, he's, he's, he's pressing by himself and looking like a fool and getting tired. The other thing he was doing, he was he was telling the center backs to push further up. And Borucci and Chiellini were poor. I know their reputations are fantastic and their icons or whatever. They were poor in that game. And what you often see, especially from Italian defenders as they get older, is they don't like to move up. They like to defend deeper. That's a problem. You can't you can only do that at certain times in the modern game. And one of the upshots from this is there's been so much tension on Allegri. Several mm. fairly reliable outlets in Italy have yeah. reported that Allegri basically went to the club and said, you guys, you want me to resign? And I'll just go away or or back me. And it could be Allegri playing games. Obviously, he's been there, you know, five years and could be things opening up in the summer. But, you know, Juventus are staring down the barrel now of if they go out against Atletico Madrid. Nothing to play for. It's done. Season's over. Not only is their season over, and no, well, they could have. I mean, right? they could have a bunch with of a, with a title, not season over. Yeah. No, but yeah. from, you, you know, know what you should. Season is. It's you not know, about winning the league title anymore. Mm. It was about winning a Champions League, and then maybe even a treble. Right. And they're going to be left with one thing, which is the one that they their fans are kind of fed up winning. They they just take for granted all the time. What they could do is perhaps stage weekly pay-per-view friendlies in Dubai against Real Madrid, since they also have a lot of time on their hands and a lot of prestige. <laughs> Um, but this is really a pivotal moment, I think, also because you remember, Pepe Marotta left. They spent a ton of money on Juventus. Now it's not like we need Ronaldo to win the Champions League, otherwise we failed. But they need to get a financial return that comes from deeper going into the competition. And I think it is a big, big blow to to the club mm. to find themselves in that situation. Even they've got their bond, their J bond. Well, we'll see what <laughs> happens of, next week <laughs> when Juve. Face Atletico Madrid back at the Allianz Stadium. Of course, before that, Inter will be taking on Eintracht Frankfurt in the Europa League. Will well, Icardi play? Be, yeah. Probably not. But that's where we'll leave things for now. We'll report on all of those exciting stories and the rest of the extraordinary Trapattoni tale in next week's Galazzo. Thank you for being with us, listener. Thank you, Gabriele and James Horncastle, for telling the stories today. We'll see you next week for now from all of us here. It's a Rivadurci. You've been listening to Galazzo, the totally Italian football show. It's a Muddy Knees Media production. And for sales and advertising, please email sales at muddykneesmedia.com. Check out our other football shows on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Audio Boom, and everywhere else you get your audio on demand. <laughs>